morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You're with the Double L team, Lyleen. Lawson. Lawson. What are you thankful for this morning? Oh, you know, so many things. You know what I'm thankful for what? this morning? What's that? I'm thankful that uh, the your motorbike course is still closed down because I still get to laugh at you this morning. Yeah. Well, actually, <laughs> I would not have been riding my motorbike to the studio this, this morning. As you can see, the weather is atrocious, which is usually, it used to be something I enjoyed because it was just like a, a momentary, you know, just a break away from, you know, going outside. It's like, oh, you know, having a good inside day. But when every day is an inside day, I just see it raining outside. And it's like, oh, even when I get to go outside. You've got the brand new motorbike sitting there in oh, the yeah, garage. That's terrible. Well, that's that's dependent on, and it's raining on COVID, not rain. But still, like I just, you know, just walking to the car this morning. It's like this is walking the, past the motorbike. Walking past the motorbike. And I'm like, this is the only time I can go outside. And it's. The outside is hurting me. (laughs) Okay, but you need to do what you need to do. What? Who was it? Was it um, David Haupt who said that we need to exercise even when it's raining outside because of the negative ions that you get from the air, which you need to make you happier? Dude, going for a swim in the rain is the best. Is the bomb. But you do it all the time when we hit our pool. But the problem is, is like because like, dude, the the A one experience going for a swim at the beach in the rain. But then I'm like, I don't want to get eaten by a shark, so. You know, it's kind there's of... There's no sharks out there. I'm a shark atheist. There's no L- sharks out there. Lyle, we live in Newcastle, bro. One there's... time the beach got shut down for like 10 days because there was a shark in the beach. Someone just needs to throw a hand grenade in the water. <laughs> <coughs> problem solved. <laughs> that is not problem solved. It's like the opposite well, of problem the solved because then it brings more sharks. Uh, yeah. Well, then, okay, and then, and then we could throw more grenades in the water. <laughs> You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Somebody's texted through to say it's the, it must be the end of the world, the way that rain's coming down. It's just, you know. Nah, I've seen heavier. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> like, come on, dude. Like, uh, should be right. All right, what have we got for positively different news this morning? Oh, positively different news this morning. Okay, big news. The second most popular country, uh, populous country in the entire world has banned the use of an array of single-use plastics. Oh, this is awesome. Yes. Yes. So Good in- to hear. India has basically banned a ton of single-use pa- plastics. They've banned the manufacturing, importing, stocking, distribution, sale, or the use of single-use pra- plastics, including polystyrene and expanded polystyrene commodities, shall be prohibited with effect by July 1st, 2022. So nice. that includes... If you're wondering, it's like, okay, what does that look like? Have they just banned, like, you know... um bags at the shopping center and that's it. Nope, check this out. So plastic sticks, plastic sticks for balloons, plastic flags, candy sticks, ice cream sticks, polystyrene for decoration, plates, cups, glasses, cutlery such as forks, spoons, knives, straws, trays, wrapping or packing film around sweet boxes, invitation cards, and cigarette plastic pla- uh, pl- packets, plastics or PVC banners less than 100 micron stirrers. Nice, that is well a done. Ton of stuff. Yes, and, and I guess why don't they ban plastic bags? Um, that's like the biggest polluter. I I believe that's in a month. Well, that's in like, a month because oh, it's monks as well. Yeah. straws. 
Um, straws no. are massive. No, no straws. No straws that I. No straws that I see here. I guess they're taking. We've kind of taken. A lot of countries have taken uh, an inward out approach, where they, they've gone for the biggest ones first. Yes, and then done the rest. Whereas I guess these guys are starting from the bottom and working their way in. Right. Um, at this point, the question for me is when things get enforced in countries like this, like India, which, you know, for the most part is a third world country, even though they're so populous. Um, it's like, how will this be enforced? Um, well, here's what I see here. Importing and manufacturing of plastic goods is not an easy thing for a peasant farmer to do. That's right. So, you know, if you cut this off at the border and if the, off at the manufacturing point, are you really going to have people like, ooh, let's start a black market in single-use plastics? Well, it's not that, like... Yeah, it's not that there's a black market created or whatever, but it's just that you, your your amount of people is so expansive. Yes, and and your you know, you it's India like it's a massive huge place. I'm like, how do you enforce this? Like in Australia, as we see, they can really enforce anything because we have such a small population that small are in population compliant population compliant as well. population that's in small areas whereas in india we look at a different social setting and and so my thought is how would they enforce it um they've actually set up a a strike force patrol team thing that's what they're calling it at least um yeah a national level task force to um, look into eliminating even more single-use plastics and uh you know working with the current single-use plastics that have been banned making sure that you know all the the companies in india are compliant and by 2022 you can't even sell them over the counter so it's not very often you're going to hear me supporting something a policy by the indian government but in this case i'm going to support this policy because this is a fantastic policy we need to be reducing the amount of plastic we need to be drastically drastically reducing the amount of plastic that we are using in our world consuming in our world and is going into our oceans. I remember Mon and I, back in the day when Mon was co-host here, did a story on how that I think every year you drink a, uh, a credit card's worth of plastic just in yeah. your drinking water. That's now gone up to a uh, fireman's helmet's worth of plastic. A fireman's helmet. Yes, that's how much plastic you drink every year just in your nice. water, as in microplastics nice. that have you know, broken down and become invisible. And uh, to the point that there will, I think in the next year or two, there's going to be more weight of plastic in the ocean than there is weight of fish. That is insane. Yes. Okay. That is off the charts. Man. We need to be addressing this. We need, and, and, and the thing is here in Australia, it's invisible. Yeah. Because we are the kind of culture and society that has, you know, wheelie bins and we throw the stuff away. Whereas when you go to a developing country, like, you know, when we were in Ethiopia and the entire country is just awash with plastic. Yeah, that's right. You're walking on plastic. You're, uh, you know, there's plastic everywhere. Yeah, particularly, you know, you go into a populous area like the market or something and it's just like plastic lines the streets. like. Yep. Yeah. Or you go down to the down to the lake and it's just full of plastic. Yeah, that's right. You know, there's hippopotamus out in the lake with plastic stuck in his jaws. <laughs> literally. <laughs> with, a, with a pink tooth. <laughs> literally. Dude, yeah. Literally, yeah, a big old plastic bag stuck in his jaws and trying to get it off his teeth, off that big old tooth, you know. Saw that. Yeah. Dude, uh, it's wild. It yeah. So it's good to see those changes at the same time across the world uh, in the United States for Ocean, which is a, a, a quite a famous company, actually. It's grown a lot in profile as, as being a, kind of one of the forefront leaders of coming up with new technology to 
clean up plastic in the ocean and whatnot. Um, they have just released... Uh, okay, so before I get into what they've released, essentially they've seen as well... Well, it's like, how does plastic end up in the ocean? Well, it's people push it out there, but also plastic lines the shores. Yes. People dump plastic on the shore. Well, they, they dump it... The biggest way is in the rivers. Yeah. I mean, you know, I remember being in uh, in Peru, for instance. You go to see uh, Machu Picchu, which is just spectacular. You know, you go down this river gorge, which is just amazing with this roaring torrent below you, and, you know, you're riding along in the train. And, you know, that magnificent river, you could just about walk across it with the amount yeah. of plastic that's floating in it. Wow. Well, they're trying to address this by first addressing the problem of plastic on land. Well, specifically at beaches. They've designed and come up with an electric-powered um, buggy that is has it's really cool because it's got like tank tracks on it and stuff and it cool. like and it like drives I around. Want one already dude, dude yeah. play with this. So like this buggy can clear up to three thousand square meters per hour of plastic from the beach. With up to depths of a, around uh, fifteen centimeters deep. So it goes through, trawls the beach. Obviously, this is much faster than you doing it by yourself as a person. In fact, they're saying it's around 30 to 40 times faster than a person. Um, And, yeah, you know, you just get the job. Like, you know, you're on you're on duty for the day, chuck your headphones in, jump in. They're calling it the B-Bot, which is an epic name. I think I'm just like, I'm sold on the name. <laughs> they jump in the B-Bot, you know, drive up and down the beach, collect all the plastic, you know, Chuck it away to get recycled. So this sounds a lot more efficient than what we have, like, in Sydney. I assume we have it up here in Newcastle as well. They have the big tractors that run Yeah, we do have the tractors. But but that's the point. But even the tractors, like, they till the beach and bring things up. But there's, like, and there is systems of catchment and whatnot. But, again, you're using, like, a massive tractor and you're, like, yeah, Whereas this is a lot, like, the buggy's a lot smaller. It sounds a lot faster and smaller. It's a lot faster, smaller, and specialised in that it's like specifically designed to go through, to sift through the sand, to get this plastic so that, yeah. It's and probably actually, better for driving around beach towels and stuff like that, you know, for your yeah, early morning swimming. that's the other thing. It's so much more delicate. You can do it whilst people are on the beach. You don't have to do it at like one o'clock in the morning. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. All right, All right. well. Yes. Serious news. Serious news. Let's talk about it. So we're going to uh, head over to the United States um, right now because uh, in relationship to universities and university clubs, so university clubs, that's obviously something that you're a part of with the uh, University of Newcastle. Yeah. And uh, you have a religious club right there, which yeah. you operate as a church and so forth, which is uh, just amazing. Um, but Bi- Joe Biden has vowed to remove Trump's free inquiry rule. Okay, so the Free Inquiry Rule actually has a longer name than that, but I won't go into all the details of it. It is a uh, a rule that was created to uh, stop a number of lawsuits that had been put forward by various Christian clubs who had been denied the right to have discriminatory appointments of their club leaders. Now, as soon as you throw the word discriminatory in there, it sounds really bad, but discrimination can actually be a good thing in the right context. And so basically what they were saying is that, you know, we want the right to be able to appoint leaders to our club who support the theological beliefs of our club. Yes. And uh, there were a number of universities that had denied that right and had disbanded the clubs 
because they said, no, you don't have the right to uh, to stipulate what religion the leader of your club is or if they are religious or not, which is kind of weird. That's very weird. But anyway, be that as it may, um, Trump brought in the free inquiry rule to put an end to that and uh, forced all of the universities to... Uh, rescind their uh, actions and mm. everything came back to peacefulness again. Now, Biden's plan is to scrap that rule uh, based around the concept of separation of church and state. Now, I, you, know, you and I, we fully support the concept of separation of church and state. And his argument kind of goes like this. Clubs and universities get certain benefits. That's right. So, for instance, you get the use of a room to hold a meeting at either a free rate or a reduced rate, uh, whatever it might be, where you know you can get together. And therefore, that's a way of the government, if it is a government-owned university, funding the religious activities of that particular religious group. Mm-hmm. And separation of church and state, the government shouldn't be funding any religious group. Now... I would say that the government should not be um, prioritizing a religious group. Mm. You know, if they were, if they're like, oh, we're only going to fund Roman Catholics, or we're only going to fund evangelicals, we're only going to fund Protestants, whatever it might be, that would be a problem. Mm. Anyway, but as May, this is the uh, um, uh, the, the the new Biden rule that he's uh, planning to bring in is that any club that refuses appointments based on religion will be disbanded. The Trump rule required that a public institution uh, to not deny a religious student organisation any of the rights or privileges afforded to other student organisations. And so this is where it gets kind of interesting uh, because if you look at the other student organisations, they are allowed to discriminate to their heart's content. Yeah. Okay, so in, in the United States, student clubs are allowed to discriminate in appointing their leaders based on sex. Mm-hmm. Or gender, like as if those are because some people pretend those are two different things. Mm-hmm. Um, they are allowed to discriminate on political partisanship, ideology, creed, ethnicity, GPA, and even attractiveness. Mm. So, you know, if you are part of, uh, I don't know, the Miss World Competition Club, then you can discriminate on attractiveness. So you're going to discriminate on all of these things, but you cannot discriminate by saying that a person who is the leader of a religious club has to be religious. That, like, oh, there's so much. There's a massive, so massive double standard right here. Yeah, so a you're pe- kind of... Yeah. Okay, pe- particularly, uh, you're about to ask me a question about it, and I'm just going to cut you off and start saying things because it's yes. like... Because what I see here is like, okay... Well, maybe you're you're pretending that you're getting rid of you know funding, uh, you know you're you're creating some kind of separation of church and state. But there are also like at every university in Australia, pretty much there is a a Labor Party. Um, there's a, a Labor Party club. student club. There's a Liberal Party student club. Yes. There are independent political party student clubs. There is even socialist student clubs. Um, like which. Again, you can make the same argument that they're being funded by the government, therefore they're s- getting 
preferential. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. The, the government is allowed to fund partisan, political, ideological-based clubs uh, that are discriminatory, discriminatory against Christianity. Hmm. This is tough, and, and and like honestly, it doesn't surprise me. We are at university. If I can give you a peek into into my world a little bit, we are in a process of well, just at the university that we're a part of here in Newcastle. There's a leadership change going on. The the actual organization that the clubs are under are changing, mm-hmm. and um, there's a policy change um, that they've brought in a new policy that brings in a specific religious uh, beliefs section. That um, yeah is again kind of going down this line of basically religious clubs that have to be controlled by the uni um i think that the main one um is the the prohibit like prohibiting proselytizing which again doesn't make any sense yes um, because your 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 labor party your liberal party your whatever other party they're going to be out proselytizing oh, do they, aren't can, they? It, they can uh, proselytize down on every 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 single corner. corner at o week and and say hey down with capitalism this is the socialist club sure. and hand you a pamphlet about you know why they should free Julian Assange but you know where is it? and so but attention is um you know being brought up because of this and and actually lawyers are getting involved and and there's all kinds of things going on in here in Newcastle but to make a federal ruling in the United States so the american the american like, atheists have uh, have weighed in on this yeah they've said we anticipate that the biden administration will agree with us that discrimination has no place in our public colleges or universities so they are super keen for biden to bring this through mm. and uh, what is most interesting to me is that this is the most discriminatory piece of legislation i've ever heard of yeah and they're like because we're going to rid the world of discrimination by discriminating uh, it only affects Christians. Yes. Like, uh, well, and, and religious religious, groups. yeah, because the, uh, the, uh, the other big group in the US that is being heavily affected by this are the Islamic clubs. Yeah. Yeah, but, the, like, I don't understand because, uh, because what it does is it creates a situation where you're basically, if someone doesn't get appointed as president for any reason, they can then make a case that it's because of religious conviction. That's right. And, and have the club closed down. So you can essentially force clubs to make you their leader. Man, I, I would honestly like, oh, I just, I, this is just going to lead to 100%, like I'm just foreseeing like the, the closing of so many Christian clubs in the United States. Like they're just, they're just going to start shutting down one by one unless, you know, unless universities themselves step in and make, well, there will be some universities. There will uh, very, very, very few, but some private universities that, well, they're obviously already conservative Christian universities. So, you know, that won't be a a difficulty, but so bad. I'm I'm like, Oh, that makes me shake it. Yeah. I I knew this one would hit close home to you by Lawson because (laughs) I've heard some of the issues that you're facing and dealing with at the University of Newcastle, and it seems to be, you know, pretty much universal around our world or the Western world at least, um, and probably the majority of the rest of the world as well, the direction that university has gone, which is pretty, pretty scary because there is nothing more powerful than education. Mm. It's the most powerful force that there is in our world right now. And that's why the devil targets education so much is because if he knows he can change the education system, he can change the entire world in one generation. That's right. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. 
Joining us on the phone this morning is Dr. John Ashton to talk about creation and science. Dr. John Ashton, welcome to the show. Oh, hello, Rob. Yes, good to be here. Yeah, fantastic. Now, we really appreciate every time you come on the show and talk about creation and science and evolution, um, this whole discussion. What are we talking about today? Well, I think uh, when I, uh, you know, there's so many young people today that have been taught that the uh, life on Earth is millions of years old and we evolved. And uh, just recently I came across um, an article summarising a a number of uh, radiometric dating results that had been done over a number of years, actually, on rocks of, of known ages. And uh, they gave some interesting results because when you when you think about when we look in our standard biology textbooks, they'll have uh, little sort of um, you know shell type creatures and creepy crawlies, and they'll date these at six hundred million years old, and then we'll go up a little bit further and we'll get into uh, fishes, and then we'll get into sort of reptiles and and dinosaurs and birds and, and mammals and, and so forth, and and the time periods that the the theory of evolution requires is millions of years because all these new uh, amazing features of these animals, and really they are design features, in the evolutionist mind, they have to have a whole lot of time and assume that there's a whole lot of mutations that gradually produce these um, correct features. Like just the other night, um, uh, we were reading um, an article to one of my grandchildren about geckos, and we know these little geckos that, you know, they can crawl up and, and run along the ceilings of your of uh, your house, and you think, well, how can they how can they stick there? And of course, it was a fascinating article um, describing how on the feet of uh, the little gecko, there's designed into a number of little that um, have all these fibres, very fine fibres, and these very fine fibres produce an electrical charge, and this electrical charge actually adheres to the surface of the um, of the material that they want to climb up. And what they do is they actually roll their foot so that it's sort of like, you know, peeling off a poster sticker, so you can stick it on and then peel it off. And so they roll their foot and so that's how they can um, adhere. And it's an amazing force. They've calculated the force that uh, is required to hold the little gecko on. If it was on a human foot, it would support a, a 90, um, I think it was a 90 kilo, um, it would support in over that area. And so when you think of this, this is an amazing design feature. Now, for evolutionists to produce all these fascinating design features, um, including our amazing reproductive systems and all the different animals and plants and, you know, flight in insects and all this sort of thing. They've got this crazy idea that over hundreds of millions of years, somehow mutations could uh, produce all these amazing life forms that we see. And, of course, the Bible picture is that, no, God created this, and this makes so much sense. But what our young people are taught is, no, that uh, the evidence for this is that the Earth is millions of years old. The surface of the Earth is, is millions of hundreds and more billions of years old, actually. And so this, you know, conflicts with the Bible account. But when we look at it, all the evidence is putting 
pushing the uh, creation model. Well, the cre- not model; it's the creation account. So when so the the whole uh, sort of foundation really of the evolutionary model is radiometric dating. That's the the only data that they can pull up. And so it was very interesting. This uh, report looked at the um, some radiometric dating results that uh, started off with the Mount St. Helens uh, lava dome, so in October 26, 1986, um, after the main eruption, uh, lava oozed out of the remaining volcanic vents. It was very viscous lava. It was a delsite lava. It, was a, it didn't flow very far, and it piled up and it produced this dome. Now, when they uh, radiometrically dated this rock, so we know that this rock formed in um, 1986, very hot, it was molten, and so um, when we they did the uh, potassium-argon dating of this sort of uh, rock um, back in uh, 1992, um, they dated the rock. Uh, the ages of the rock ranged from... Uh, 350,000 years to 2.8 million years. And yet the rock, as we know, was, um, just, uh, you know, not even, uh, 10 years old. Um, so this was, um, you know, this is a rock that we actually knew the age of. Now, mm. similar results have been done on other rocks. For example, the Alulalalai basalt, uh, that erupted in, um, 1801 in Hawaii, that's similarly dated at 1.6 million years. There was an eruption in 1792 of uh, Mount Etna Etna in Sicily, another basalt, that dated at 1.4 million years, plus or minus 0.08, so it's quite an accurate result. Um, Another eruption in 1915 in Mount Lassen in California, um, gave a hundred thousand years. Um, another eruption, uh, that, uh, was, um, uh, believed to have erupted according to the local history about the year a thousand AD, so it was roughly a thousand years old, uh, dated at 250,000 years. So we can see there's, um, a, you know, a huge uh, discrepancy. Another, there are a number of um, volcanoes that have erupted near the um, rim of the Grand Canyon, and so their lava has flowed over on on top of the, all the sedimentary rocks of the Grand Canyon. Now, rocks at the base of the Grand Canyon, are, for example, the Cardenas Basalt, dated at about one billion years, one point oh seven billion years. Um, and that was in agreement with the evolutionary theory. But then, when they dated the rock, the lava on the top of the Grand Canyon, it actually dated older than the uh, rock at the bottom. And so we we have when we date rocks that we sort of know the age of, and this sort of thing by this method, we get absolutely ridiculous results. And I think you know there was also the classic example of the Mount Nauhoe eruption in New Zealand that erupted in, um, uh, I think, somewhere uh, there were several eruptions between 1948 and the early 1950s. And when samples from these rocks were uh, dated by a number of different methods, 
um, by the School of Earth Sciences at um, the Australian National University, which is you know, one of Australia's top universities, and uh, their geosciences area is certainly one of the top. Um, they gave uh, ages in the order, you know, of sort of, uh, you know, 130 million years, and I think one sample gave a, a result in the order of 3 billion years. And yet these rocks were about 50 years old. The work was done around the year 2000. So when we, and, and this is an important thing to understand, we, when, when you're looking at a rock out there that you don't know the age of, um, and you can do these results and get a million years, you know, or so many million years or tens of millions of years for the rock. The evolutionists jump on this and they say, this is how old the rock is. But when we can analyse lava that we historically saw rough, we know how old it is, and it's only, you know, tens or hundreds of years old, and yet it still comes back at millions of years. And it, it's very interesting. This should really seriously ring alarm bells that we've got major problems with this long-age theory. And it's interesting, when they were calibrating, when they first were calibrating the... Um, radiometric dating methods. They dated some rocks from memory, I think it was over in the Appalachian Mountains over on the east coast of uh, the US. And uh, they happened to get dates that corresponded to the fossil ages. But what they should have tweaked to is the fossil ages were based on the uniformitarian principle, and that is that the surface of the Earth has just been changing very gradually all the time. But we know that isn't true because we have evidence of catastrophe. You can't bury whole dinosaur skeletons and whole whale skeletons and have them preserved by some slow, gradual, you know, a few millimetres per year deposition. There's a catastrophic path. If you have a catastrophic path, you can't um, apply this uniformitarian principle. So automatically that should have tweaked to those people, hang on, we can't assume the uniformitarian principle. And if these dates are lining up with this uniformitarian principle, then there's got to be something classic wrong. And I think radiometric dating conveys an aura of reliability to the general public and even professional scientists. And what we need to realise is that this method is just absolutely flawed. Mm. And when we look at the evidence for design in nature and creation, it's overwhelming. And I, I hope that this can be really encouraging, that we can believe the Bible account. You know, life on Earth isn't that old. Erosion data tells us that as well, that the surface of the Earth is not, you know, the hundreds of millions of years old that they claim. And so we should really be reinforcing our hope that we can believe the Bible account. And therefore, also, when we combine that, the overwhelming evidence for creation with and we've just celebrated Easter with all the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection, and that is a, a massive supernatural event that confirmed that God came here as our saviour. We can we we have hope. Evolutionary model and the evolutionary belief has no hope for the future, no hope for life after death or anything like this. But when we think about this amazing, beautiful system here, why would it be created just? to live a little, you know, short time. You know, we were created to be with the Creator forever. And I, I think, you know, I'm hoping that this will give listeners hope. We can really believe the Bible account. It really makes 
so much sense from so many different directions to look at it. Mm. Yeah, that's fantastic stuff, John. And I was just, you know, thinking about it as you're working through some of those dates. And so you've got Mount St. Helens. Um, and if my memory serves me correctly, um, you're dealing with samples that were taken, say, six or eight years after, I think eight years after the actual rock was formed and comes back at 2.8 million years old. But then you referenced another one that uh, took place a thousand years ago and came up with much more recent Figures, did I get that right? Uh, re- a more yeah, recent yeah, age? Sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the, the that seems to be backwards. Our I mean, own, according to sort of Indian dating, occurred about, um, or, or uh, you know, um, Aztec dating, uh, occurred about a thousand years ago, about uh, 1064 or 1065, and that dated at, um, there are several measurements done, uh, 270,000 years, um, plus or minus 90, uh, years, or, uh, 250,000 years, plus or minus 150 years. Mm. Yeah, so 250 to 200. Yeah, 250,000 years to 270,000 years by two different, uh, analysis, uh, that were done at different times, and yet the Indian dating is, 1064 to 1065. And that's a lot newer than the six-year-old rock out of Mount St. Helens that comes back at 2.8 million years. There's a big difference between those two, and it seems to be working backwards. You know, you would think that if there was some credibility to this that it would it would at least it would at least work the right direction even if the figures were wildly incorrect. Well, that's right, and, and the example where the lava at the top of the Grand Canyon dates older than the lava at the bottom of the Grand Canyon by hundreds of millions of years as well, a couple of hundred million years. Mm. Yeah, so, oh, yeah, the, the, the results really random, and I think what's happening is, see, what the, the radiometric dating method really is an assumption based on uh, the rate of decay, which we've measured, and we have to assume that that's constant, but it's, it's based on the chemical analysis of minerals in these um, um, in these particular rocks. And then we have to, you know, assume uh, a whole lot of, you know, the chemistry thing that nothing was leached out, nothing was added, all sorts of things. So the method is... With these sort of methods, really, for an analytical method really to have meaning, it has to be validated, and that is we have to have known samples that we can test the method on, that it gives reliable results consistently all the time. And one of the things that I point out is, and I mean, you know, I'm a chartered chemist, um, is that the radiometric dating method has never been validated for prehistorical rocks. As a matter of fact, when we use historical rocks, the method, method doesn't work. Mm, mm. And so the, the most accurate method, of course, that we have is probably the carbon-14 method. And this gives much younger ages. As a matter of fact, from the you know, carbon-14 dating, um, anything older than 100,000 years, for example, would not give a carbon-14 result because all the carbon-14 would be gone, theoretically. And um, and yet we can date, you know, dinosaur remains, all these sort of things, and, and find carbon-14 in them. So we've got a massive discrepancy there between carbon-14 dating and these other types of radiometric dating. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And really, the carbon-14 dating, when we correct for the uh, carbon dioxide dilution effect and all this sort of thing and the cosmic ray effect, really confirms the age of the Earth um, indicated in the Bible of only thousands of years. So carbon-14 is the creationist best friend, as uh, you know, I remember hearing one scientist say at one time. So... We're, as we're doing more, you know, understanding more about uh, life and the biochemistry of life, all the evidence is pointing to supernatural creation. And when we look at our carbon 14 dating, it's all pointing to the biblical ages, uh, likely to be very close to the actual ages, if not absolutely correct. Dr. John Ashton, thank you so much for joining us here on Faith FM this morning. We've got to move on with the uh, show. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.